Welcome to the George Washington University Business of Sports podcast. We talk about sports, careers, mentors, networking, and a lot more here. And we do the show from the GW campus in Foggy Bottom. I'm Mark Hyman, professor in the sports management program, and my producer is Henry Levy. My guest is John Miller the voice of the San Francisco Giants and one of the truly great baseball broadcasters of his generation. In our conversation, John reflects on a Hall of Fame career, including 20 years as the play-by-play broadcaster on ESPN's Sunday Night Baseball. He speaks candidly and hilariously about a memorable on-air mistake and how to gracefully correct play-by-play errors. And John answers the question, should players suspected of using anabolic steroids be voted into baseball's Hall of Fame? John Miller, welcome to GW. And the special podcast. Well, this one is special for sure. Let me just say, if there's something funny, laugh very loudly. (laughs) All right. Um, let's talk about the baseball offseason for you. So at what stage of the offseason do you begin to look forward to going to a ballpark in the evening? How many months, how many days into the offseason does it take for you to reach that point? Well, it is a, a different kind of a job because there's a game in baseball every day, six months, every day there's a ball game. You travel all the time. And then the season's over, and then you have all these months off, at least five months off before you go back to spring training. Uh, By the time the season is over, uh, I'm ready to have some time off and away from the ballpark and away from the airports and that sort of thing. Uh, But uh, the, the funny part of it was is that for a long time, the season would end, and I would get home, and I would say, I'm just gonna stay in bed and stay in the house and do nothing for a few days. Uh, but after a couple of days, I would start getting antsy. And uh, my wife, Janine, brought this up to me and said, uh, you know, it's, you're really not that much fun to be around. And uh, I, you kind of drive me nuts. And I, I really didn't know what she was talking about. But uh, we, we would kind of build up maybe to taking a trip somewhere, going on vacation, finding a beach or, or whatever. And she said, let's just immediately go on vacation as soon as you finish because you're antsy. You're, you you want to be at the ballpark. You want to be at the airport. You want to be going somewhere because that's what you've been doing every day for six months. So I think there was some truth to that. And uh, uh, so that's what we do now. The, the season ends and we head out and we take a vacation somewhere just to, uh, to take off. So, And for her, uh, a matter of uh, self-preservation. Uh, and I don't really miss the game or broadcasting the game or, or anything like that until the holidays are over. Uh, January the 2nd, I'm ready to go to spring training, and I've had a lot of time off, and I'm refreshed and ready to go. Uh, but you know, there's still another several weeks before we go to spring training. So uh, so now, uh, again, again, I think it's part of her own uh, self-preservation Usually we take another vacation after New Year's uh, so that we can get out of the house and uh, because I just I just get kind of antsy I guess but uh, so I don't know if that answers your question exactly but uh, uh, the game is uh, 
it's a lot of fun. It's a kind of a job where uh, you go to work every day, and there are days maybe after all the travel and whatnot uh, that, that I'd soon not go to the ballpark that day. I'd like to just stay home with my wife and kick back a little bit. Uh, but even on those days, once you get to the ballpark, uh, the adrenaline starts to pulse because it's always fresh. Uh, you have no idea what's going to happen. There's going to be a ball game. And there are certain preparations you have to make, people you have to talk to, managers, players, uh, to be ready to do the job. And and that's kind of uh, uh, interesting and, and engaging. And then the game starts, and uh, and, and you're, you're into it, and, uh, and it's always fresh. It's always new. So uh, it's never a problem once you're at the ballpark. There are days where you just as soon not go that particular day. Did you sound like this when you were 15 years old? I mean, I just have to... I, I'm interested in knowing when the voice kind of developed, when you began to sound like a baseball broadcaster. Yeah, I I, I, I really don't... I mean, you, you have, your voice is your voice. I, I think you can learn how to, how to use it. I remember taking, in college, my first semester in college, uh, Speech 1A. And uh, it was Speech 1A, Voice and Articulation. And the idea was about using your voice in the best possible way. And we had exercises that he, you would have to stand up in front of the class and you'd have to use your hands and you'd say, you must bounce the ping pong ball off the back wall. And the idea was to hear your words coming back from the back wall at you, I guess. I, I was not that good in the class. Uh, uh, or good at the class uh, one of the tests we had to take was a cross section of the head and we had to name all of these parts of that in, involved speaking the voice and I remember asking the guy he says, if I don't know the names of those things how does that hurt me in terms of using my voice and, and I remember he tried to explain it to me but uh, I still, I really did not get it. And finally, a guy, he was a little bit older than me. I was, I was 17 years old starting college, and, uh, and you know, I kind of was pretty sure I knew everything. And he explained to me, he says, you're right, it doesn't mean anything, but it's part of the course, and you're going to sit with me now, and we're going to go over this before we go to, to class to take that test, so you, you can pass the test. And uh, so he kind of took me under his wing, and I really appreciated it. Uh, so I, after that, tried to stay away from classes like that. We had a broadcasting class, and it was taught by a very famous San Francisco disc jockey that I'd listened to for years. And part of the class was we had to know something that uh, I never have seen it used. It was called the International Phonetic Alphabet. And, and I just decided, well, I, I, I don't think this, that's of any use to me. So... When that test comes up, I'll probably fail it, and uh, but I think I'll still pass the course. I was made the decision, so I, I didn't even show up the day they had that test. This is probably the wrong place to be telling stories like this uh, now that I think about it. But uh, uh, so I didn't show up for that test, and then he gave me an A in the class. And I always wanted to ask him ever since uh, uh, why that was, but I always assumed that he thought, well, this guy, the one guy in the class who actually sounds like he ha has a future in broadcasting. And uh, so uh, this international uh, phonetic alphabet is not important to him. So he, 
I'm just going to overlook that. But, yeah, um, that's the worst possible story you could have told <laughs> in this class. <laughs> so don't follow me on that because I've really had so many times over the years where I wish I'd known that international phonetic alphabet. But uh, uh, anyway, so uh, I, I was not, a, uh, I guess it's a, a long way of saying that I had a chance to go to work in a TV station in uh, uh, north of the Golden Gate Bridge up in the, toward the wine country after two years in college and here I was being offered a job in broadcasting so I left school and took the job in broadcasting now I looked older than I was uh, I always, always looked older than I was and I just never put on my resume how old I actually was because I was 20 years old and I think they thought I was closer to 30 so I was always a little run down somehow but, uh, and lacking hair and uh, so they hired me and, and found out later. The, one of the women in the, uh, the TV station found out it was my birthday, and so they did a little surprise, little birthday thing for me in the offices in the studio at the TV station. And uh, the owners of the station came in and wished me a happy birthday. They said, what are you now? What is it, 29, 30? I said, no. One of the secretaries said, no, he's 21. <laughs> They're like, 21? What? And uh, so I always thought, like, they either had me confused with somebody else when they hired me, or they just made this assumption that I was a little older than I was. So. Is, isn't there a story about a famous ball player who used to take wagers on, on your age? Well, I did. Uh, I felt like I took the right path for me leaving school. I kind of maybe had a much narrower uh, field of focus in terms of what I was going to be able to head into. I just wanted to be in broadcasting and to broadcast sports, but. Uh, and I got hired by the Oakland Athletics, who at the time were the world champions of baseball. They'd won two consecutive World Series, and they still had all the same players back. One was named uh, uh, Reggie Jackson, who ended up in Baseball's Hall of Fame. And uh, he found out that I was only 22 years old. And he said, are you kidding me? I would have said 32 at least, and I, I would have thought that I was giving you a break on 32 and uh, so, you know, I'm <laughs> so uh, every time we'd go into a city, he'd find out the other team's superstar. And then he would make a wager with them. And I don't know how much they were betting, but I should have asked for a piece of it. But uh, he'd say, if you can come within eight years of his actual age, I'll give you $500. And if they couldn't, then they'd owe him 500 which this was 1974. The 500 was 500 in those days, let me tell you. So uh, the, the closest somebody came was like, you know, 31, 32. They, they never came within, even within eight years. And he never lost that bet. So, uh, uh, and I thought, well, this is a good thing. I'm just a little kid. And I, I had never, all the cities we went into, the first time I'd ever been to any of them. And uh, so I thought this was good. They think I'm older. And uh, I could tell some story from the old days in baseball to somebody think, yeah, he, he remembers, yeah. So... Uh, 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 you know, so I was never offended by it. I always thought, well, this is good. Um, but I think it was kind of a, in an odd way, it kind of helped me in that in that regard. But uh, uh, just between us, I just soon people thought that I, wow, you're 66. I wouldn't have said more than 50. You know, now I'm, I've kind of gone the other the other direction. Really interesting. Um, so. Tell us, when you think about the great 
broadcasters, sports broadcasters, what what are the qualities that all of them have that you, you need to really master in order to be considered one of the greats? Well, everybody in this room, I think, has now grown up with sports on television. That's the way you get sports. When, when I was a kid, uh, the San Francisco Giants televised only the games that they played in L.A. The only other Giants broadcast that you got was on the radio. And um, so the television was, uh, that was always a special occasion when they televised a game. So the broadcasters that I listened to, that I studied uh, and tried to emulate, they were primarily radio broadcasters. And in San Francisco, we had two uh, broadcasters that in, ended up in the Baseball Hall of Fame, Russ Hodges and Lon Simmons. And, uh, and I felt very fortunate to grow up there because uh, they taught me how to, how to broadcast on the radio. Uh, and just a secret between us here in this room uh, the real talent is to learn how to broadcast a live sporting event on the radio where you have to paint the picture for the benefit of the people who can't see it so that the listener can uh, create an image of what's going on in their own mind based on the details that that you're providing Uh, Anybody who can do that can do a game on television. Because television, number one, the play-by-play man is not even really essential to the whole exercise. You can already see the game. It's already there on television. And the, the former player, the expert analyst, is there for the replays to show you all the things that uh, maybe you didn't notice your first uh, time through in, in the live part of the game. Uh, so the play-by-play man's job is really just to... Uh, give the game structure. Who's up? What's the score? What inning are we in? What's the situation? Uh, and, and I remember Al Michaels, uh, at the time uh, that I started doing a lot more television, and I asked him for some advice, because Al was a great TV play-by-play man for many years, who used to do a lot of radio. And he said, well, the most important thing broadcasting a game on radio is your description of what's going on. Uh, on television, it's absolutely not important to describe anything, and in fact, it gets in the way of what you're doing if you describe anything. So that's the least important thing of, uh, for a television broadcaster. So uh, uh, I always admired Al because he was so good at doing the television. He figured out what the job was, and he was very good at it. And, and I think whether it's radio or television, the single most important thing is the preparation to never be surprised by what's going to happen to know the rules to be totally immersed in the in the sport that you're covering and the history of that sport and the current events in that sport what's the news right now uh, and to be ready with all of the players who are in your game that day uh, no matter who it might be and what might come up so uh, and I think the uh, that always comes behind the idea of if you're going to do a sport, then you should have been somebody who loved that sport your whole life. So you, you can't really be new to the sport as an adult and then learn it and be able, and I think to expect to be able to, to broadcast it effectively. Have you ever made a mistake on the air? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> um, actually, uh, when I did the and, and everybody 
is going to make a mistake now and again. We're human. I always used to say to the newspaper writers, well, you can make a mistake, and then your editor catches it and fixes it for you uh, after the fact. Uh, we're live, and every word goes out live. Uh, and I think it's important when you do, if you misspeak, uh, uh, the long ago, not to you and me maybe, but uh, long ago the president, uh, John Kennedy, uh, made a comment that I always remembered, which was, uh, it's only a mistake if you don't correct it. So you say something in error, correct it, and don't be afraid to be on the air and say, I beg your pardon, I misspoke or I made a mistake, and then correct it. Uh, it's not a mistake unless you don't correct it. So, uh, uh, But I think the uh, a very bad moment for me it was a game-ending home run at the old Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. And uh, the Baltimore Orioles were playing the uh, the Angels. And the Orioles had a player named Lee Lacey. You remember, remember Lee? He was a pretty good hitter, had some power. And the Orioles are down in the bottom of the ninth inning, 5-2, to two, and they get a rally. You know, So they're, they're pretty far behind. They get a run home, they have a couple of men on base, and Lee Lacey comes up. And he hits a drive to the opposite field, down the right field line. Now, he's a right-handed hitter, and he hits a ball down the right field line toward the foul pole. And he's really crushed it. So I knew immediately that if it was fair, it was a home run. So he, he swings, and I start my play-by-play. He hits it deep down the right field line. Uh, if it's fair, it's gone. It's hooking. And immediately I think, say to myself, no, he's a right-handed hitter. That, that would be a slice. And I thought... In a second or less, it's either going to be a foul ball or a game-ending home run. I don't really have time to say, oh, I beg your pardon. I shouldn't have said hooking. I should have said slicing. Uh, so I just immediately said, it's slicing. It's off the foul pole, home run. And um, the game is over. So, you know, I don't really think that much about it. The, the, the game's over. I let the crowd roar. I have a little summary after that and uh, try to capture the moment. And during the post-game show, we would always play the highlights of the game. It was a little show that had sponsors. And so I'm narrating these highlights. And then finally I says, and then with runners at first and third and two down at the bottom of the ninth, Lee Lacey came to the plate. And here's the highlight. You know, deep down the right field line, if it's fair, it's gone. It's hooking. It's slicing. It's gone. And I'm, you know... So then I have to come back on, and I said, uh, you know, uh, sounds crazy, but I've never seen action on a ball like that. <laughs> First hooking and then slicing all at the same time. So, uh, and I thought, well, I'm having a little joke, a little at my own expense. So the radio station that carried the Oriole games at that time would take the big highlights of that night's game, and they it was a rock and roll station, and they would tie them into a, a current big rock and roll hit. And they'd play them all night long, and they'd play them the next morning and throughout the day. So no matter where I went the next day in Baltimore, people said, what a game last night. And I said, now, a right-handed hitter, that's a slice. Yeah, I tried to get that. Yeah. So the whole city was trying to clue me in on the difference between hooking and slicing. Yeah, oh, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. So uh, that's the thing. You, you screw up on a major play. It doesn't go away. You're, you're really cooked. So, uh, uh, and... It happens, so uh, go ahead and uh, uh, 
admit it and just and just move on. So and I, and I think it's a, it's something you learn in, in the, this business. If people see that you just want to get it right, even if you screw up and then you correct it, uh, now they have confidence that that's that that you will correct it. That your main thing is just to tell them the truth. So, um, uh, so that's I think I think it's helpful to always keep that in mind. Um, I'd like to to ask you to talk a little bit about um, some of the great players that you've seen, but in this context, um, in the '90s, you spent a lot of time watching Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire, and players who we later learned or suspect were doing remarkable things with the assistance of of anabolic steroids. Should those players be elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in your judgment? Well, let me ask the people in here a question. Uh, How many of you actually heard of Mark McGuire? All right, so most of you. And and Barry Bonds. All right, so that's good. Uh, Because these are already kind of like old-timey guys now. Uh, But... Uh, at the time it was happening, Mark McGuire hit 70 home runs in 1998. Nobody had ever hit more than 61 home runs in the entire 100-plus year history of Major League Baseball. Uh, Babe Ruth hit 60 home runs in 1927, and that was that number became an icon. That was the record. And when somebody got hot and they were closing in or they had a shot at that record, that was always uh, considered the pinnacle the, that nobody had ever been able to reach. And finally, in 1961, uh, Roger Maris, playing for the Yankees, the Babes team, hit 61 home runs. And Mickey Mantle on the same team hit 54 and was going after the record, too. And then he got hurt and got sick and had, was in the hospital and, 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 and failed. So now, 37 years after Roger Maris, uh, here's Mark McGuire, and, and he hit 70. He not only past 60 and 61 both he shot on by it and went way beyond and and everybody enjoyed it the whole country followed it all the television network I used to do a game every Sunday night on ESPN uh, this Sunday night baseball game of the week and uh, if we had a chance to get McGuire on and Sammy Sosa was with the Cubs and he was following McGuire very closely he, Sammy ended up with 66 home runs that year uh, we wanted those guys on because the whole country was captivated by what was going on. And everybody liked the, the two guys as well. Uh, Barry Bonds was one, a great player at that time who had speed, power, batting average, great defensive outfielder, gold glove winner, and could steal bases. There wasn't really anything on a field that was possible in which he did not excel, except he had a, he had a weak arm a poor throwing arm in left field. That was his one drawback. Well, now, all of a sudden, Barry Bonds, within two, three years of McGuire and Sosa, uh, I think felt like, well, everybody doesn't even know what I'm doing anymore. He's still putting up incredible numbers, all-around numbers, but not hitting 70 home runs. And uh, and then he, all of a sudden, he got bigger, and uh, and, and people were starting to whisper, well, Barry has maybe have gone to the dark side, and so on and so forth. So, uh, uh, so in, in 2001, Barry Bonds hit 73 home runs, and people—I mean—they didn't like Barry to begin with because Barry had a prickly personality with the sports writers in particular. Uh, 
And uh, so now everybody was routinely, nobody ever really said anything about McGuire and Sosa, but now when Barry Bonds was doing it now, uh, everybody thought, well, there's something suspicious going on here. But uh, anyway, he had 73 home runs, and it was a uh, re- remarkable season, a remarkable season to watch and to broadcast. Uh, but it was already under a cloud of suspicion in which he achieved this. So, uh, And then as time has gone on, you know, McGuire had finally admitted that he was using uh, anabolic steroids. Uh, uh, you know, Barry, uh, his, through his lawyer, admitted that probably unknowingly he used them. I think that's as far as he's gone to admitting it. But uh, uh, and, he, and he was prosecuted and convicted of a of a felony at one time, which I think has since been overturned by a court. But uh, anyway, uh, it, it kind of, I think, took a lot of the fun out of that aspect of the game and uh, the baseball records because for a lot of us who grew up with the game and for our parents and the parents beyond them and going back decades, uh, those records had uh, reflected a level of achievement and uh, it was part of the fun of being a fan of that of baseball. And so I think that if a player was known to have uh, used those, then then he should not be in the Hall of Fame. And uh, Now, if Barry Bonds ever came out and confessed to everything and uh, asked for forgiveness and whatnot, uh, you know, maybe maybe people would would accept it. I think he will get in the Hall of Fame anyway. But I think it, it was a real black eye uh, for the game, and uh, and that's I think something that should preclude a guy from actually reaching that ultimate plateau. Two more questions before we let you go. Um, one, mentors is an important subject on this podcast, and I think generally for the people in this room, identifying people who are working in the industry, um, sometimes in, in the precise job that they someday hope to have. Tell us a little bit about your mentors. Have there been people along the way who you've really relied on for advice and for guidance? Many, many people. Um including it was a man named Stan Atkinson I got hired for this TV job uh, when I was 20 years old and Stan had been at NBC in in uh, LA he'd been an anchorman in the Bay Area he was a, an accomplished polished television anchorman the 6 o'clock news the 11 o'clock news uh, he'd been on the NBC nightly news as a reporter uh, and so we had a nightly newscast on that station and I did all the local sporting events that was part of our programming, but also uh, we had the uh, 6 o'clock newscast. So he taught me about uh, television and uh, uh, how it worked and how to uh, angle yourself a little bit just right for the camera and so on and so forth. Uh, so he was a big help to me. Uh, but the, the guy who was, I think, the most help who really reached out to me was uh, named uh, Monty Moore. Uh, he was the longtime voice of the Oakland Athletics and uh, when I sent a tape to the A's, they were looking for a, a, a new broadcaster. Uh, the owner of the A's fired a broadcaster every year. Uh, Monty Moore was the exception. He always had the job, but had a new partner almost every year. And Charlie Finley was the name of the owner. And um, he, it was like if Ebenezer Scrooge uh, existed in real life, it was Charlie Finley. But... Uh, 
and so I heard that he fired his broadcaster again after the 73 season. And I made a tape. I went to a Giants game at Candlestick Park, the old home of the Giants, and taped a game as if I were broadcasting it and made it into an audition tape to send it out. And I really almost did not send one to the A's because I thought, well, he's never going to. He lives in Chicago, and he's never heard of me. Why go through all the effort? And then I thought, well, obviously, if I don't send a tape, then I am not definitely going to get the job. And so I just went ahead and sent the tape and the the package and whatnot uh, without any expectation that anything would ever come of it. And and it was a good lesson because, you know, I tried for all these different jobs, and uh, the one I got was the job with the with the A's. And what had happened is uh, uh, Charlie Finley had had a heart attack after the 73 World Series. And he'd been recuperating all through the winter. And he still had time to fire the broadcaster that had done the games with Marty. Um, And then he had his secretary send all the tapes that had come in. They had like 200 and something audition tapes that had come in from around the country. And he had them all sent to Marty. He said, go through these and, you know, find four or five good ones and play them for me over the phone. So Marty had an ethic that said, even if I never heard of a guy, uh, I'll still listen to his tape, at least for a little, a little while, because he went to the trouble of making a tape. I owe him at least that. So I was one of those guys. He, he says, this guy says he worked in the Bay Area in television. I never heard of him. How could I? I, I know everybody who works around here. And, um, but because he had that ethic, he put it on, he listened to it anyway, and, and he liked it. And he started calling people uh, about me and who is this guy, what do you know about him, and so on and so forth. And then he called me, and uh, ultimately uh, I got the job. And, uh, and then he was a great help to me because after they hired me already, I kind of revealed uh, that I was only 22 years old. And even they, I think, thought that was too young. <laughs> so the public relations man, as he made out a bio for me, said that I was 24. He just invented a new age for me. But uh, uh, so Monty kind of took me under his wing and showed me the ropes, uh, and he was very honest with me. If I uh, screwed up in the broadcast, he would he would point that out immediately. And uh, uh, but uh, I got fired before the next season started, just like everybody else. And but Monty stayed very close to me, and he argued with Charlie Finley and and so on and so forth. And it was kind of a downer because I thought, wow, I'm 23 years old and I just got fired from the best job. I'm already on the downward slide of my career at 23. That's not good. Uh, I thought somebody's going to pull me out of a gutter. You know, I'll be uh, a hopeless drunk, you know, and within a few months of, uh, of this big setback. But uh, uh, there was a chance to get back into Major League Baseball a couple years later in Texas, and they wanted Monty Moore to be the, the guy. And Monty kept recommending me that he wasn't going to do it and he wasn't going for that job. Uh, and they said, well, we want somebody with more experience. But then they kept coming back to Monty. And long story short, they actually wanted to fly me out to Florida, the Texas Rangers, to do their first two games of the spring as an audition. And uh, I was doing the University of San Francisco college basketball games, and they were in the NCAA tournament. So Monty said, well, I'll go do those games for you, and you go to Florida and do the uh, the games there. Anyway, I do the two games, 
and I come back, and the guy from Texas calls me the next day, and he says, you know, this is terrible, uh, but uh, because you did a great job, and people are calling the talk shows after the games and complimenting you and say, wow, that guy's really good. But before you even did the first game, the Kansas City Royals broadcaster came over to me and said, so you hired John, huh? I said, no, no, we haven't hired him. We're auditioning him. And he said, oh, so you haven't hired him. Because I would be interested in that job. I haven't made a new contract here. And he's telling me all this, and and he's like saying, and his name is like gold. You know, he's done the Royals games for years and so on and so forth. I said, well, all right, well, thanks. Thanks a lot. And I called Monty to tell him what happened. And Monty was furious. Monty was... uh, I was too dumb to be furious. Uh, I was like, well, that's the way to go, you know. But Monty was furious, and he calls this guy, and he, he reams him for about an hour. And he called me back telling me about how he uh, you know, destroyed him. He says, if I'd known that you were this kind of a person, I never would have recommended John for that. And I'm so glad that I didn't go there, because obviously you're an idiot, and you don't know anything about it. It would have been a nightmare for me going there. And so if you think that guy from Kansas City is half as good as John, then you don't know your own business. And uh, if I knew who you worked for, I'd call him and tell him you should be fired because you don't know anything, blah, blah, blah. You know, he would Monty went on and on and on. And I said, well, <laughs> wow, thanks so much, Monty. I'm, I'm honored that you would do that uh, on my behalf. But I guess it's what's done is done, you know. So um, anyway, uh, the next day the guy from Texas calls me back and he says, uh, well, it turns out this guy from Kansas City was just using us to try to get a better deal in Kansas City. So so the job's still open, and we want to offer you the job. And so I was like, you mean, you mean you're mean you offering me the job now? And he says, yeah, yeah. So I said, all right, I'll take it. And uh, and I called Monty to tell him. And uh, and uh, so ever since uh, I told Monty that, you know, I got married and was in the business for a long time, we had children, I said, we, we built a little grotto in the backyard. And... Uh, it has like a statue of you, and uh, we we have the kids go out and light candles and say prayers every night before they go to bed. You know, just uh, on your behalf. So uh, it's like a, a holy spot dedicated to you. So, but really, uh, you know, he, I was just a kid that did one season with him, and yet uh, I think the, you know, what he did for me there, and I've been doing baseball ever since. So I uh, talk about a mentor, uh, and, and and Monty Moore was the guy for me who, who sort of changed everything well John we want to thank you very much for stopping by appreciate it maybe you could do some heavy editing on this podcast and get it to the right no need no need thank you all right thank you